0: Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at NewDealLeaders.org or wherever podcasts are found.
1: Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox-Bolton, CEO of The New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I would loved speaking with the new Iowa Senate Minority Leader, Zach Walls. Zack Zach first burst onto the national scene as just a freshman in college, when video of him speaking out against a proposed state constitutional ban on gay marriage went viral and landed him a guest appearance on the Ellen DeGeneres show. Fast forward just nine years later, and Zach is taking the reins as what he believes is the youngest Senate minority leader in state history. I spoke with Zach in the wake of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. We spoke about the state of our national politics and what it will take to unify our country. He also shared lessons he's learned about how to affect change and some of his favorite books. Now more than ever, I'm grateful to those among us who choose to serve in elected office. And Zach's leadership is a great example of this honorable and important profession. So Zach Walls, welcome to an honorable profession.
2: Thanks, Debbie. It's good to be with you.
1: First, I just want to give you huge congratulations on being elected to Senate minority leader in Iowa. It's a huge job and responsibility, and we're going to look forward to working with you in that, in that new role.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's 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 been obviously a whirlwind seven weeks or so here since the leadership election. And I've been getting a lot of congratulations and a couple of condolences, Uh, (laughs) but but mostly congratulations.
1: I love it. Well, I want to come back to that uh, that role and what you want to do in that job. But um, I first kind of think we have to start with uh, where we are. You and I are talking the day after the siege on the U.S. Capitol. And I just wanted to kind of ask you as a public servant, of course, that happened when members of Congress were on the floor trying to certify the election. Uh, and I think a lot about public servants right now and how they must be feeling with the division and the mistrust. And so, you know, kind of how are you feeling about our national politics? And uh, is it mirroring what you're seeing in Iowa?
2: Sure. Why? Well, I, I certainly hope that this is the, the, the deepest dark before the dawn. It's obviously difficult when you have a president who's more interested in dividing the country than uniting the country. It's difficult when you have a president who is committed to putting his personal power and pride and vanity ahead of the national interest and ahead of the democratic process. And so th- there should be no doubt that this is going to be a difficult next uh, two weeks here as, as the Trump administration comes to its conclusion. And whether that's uh, by his removal with the 25th Amendment or if he's impeached or if he is eventually escorted out of the White House, uh, it is. It, it, I think there's this a real chance that it gets worse before it gets better. I obviously am hoping for the best, uh, but certainly here in Iowa, we are going to begin planning for the worst I was on the phone earlier today with the State Patrol uh, post in our our capital, talking about security measures that are being taken, having tactical and SWAT teams on standby uh, when we reconvene on Monday. Uh, so it's certainly a, a a strange and unsettling and sad time. You know, my my most um, fervent wish is is not just that we are able to get through this moment of crisis and find healing and and bring people together rather than pushing them apart. But that as we go through that process, we as a country take a real careful look in the mirror and try to understand how we got to this point because it didn't happen accidentally. It didn't happen overnight. It was the consequence and conclusion of a series of decisions that were made uh, by people. Uh, this was not just a, a kind of a fate accompli. This was a, something that, that was the result of of decisions by people who should be held accountable for their actions. And we need to learn the lessons of not just the last four years, but uh, all the time that led up to making the last four years possible.
1: Are you optimistic we can get there?
2: Cautiously. You know, I think it's, it's, in terms of how we get there, I think there are some question marks. There should be no doubt that there are structural challenges to holding conservatives accountable when we live in a state that that certainly as the urban rural split has accelerated has has given political new political power to conservatives that is much much larger than uh the lowercase d democratic process would you'd expect to allow but uh all of that being said i i do think that we are seeing a fisher begin to emerge and it is not entirely clear to me how this will resolve it would be deeply ironic obviously if the republican party somehow experienced a fracture given that party's uh, history uh, and how it came to be in this country but in fact i i was i was reflecting on the words of our nation's first republican president uh, just last night as i was working on my statement about yesterday's events and and was reminded of the closing words of the Gettysburg Address in which President Lincoln says that this government by, of, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. And I think that is the ethos and the spirit that we all need to be taking forward in in the difficult days, weeks, months, and and years ahead.
1: Yeah, well, I couldn't agree with that more. And I do think that it's leaders like you on the state and local level who are going to help us get through this and get to the to the next place, hopefully still intact. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> um, I hope. I hope so too. But you you mentioned kind of Iowa, and obviously uh, for all of us political junkies, when we think Iowa, we think presidential politics. It's just such an interesting state, right? Obama won it twice. Trump won it twice. I think there was some hope that your senator Ernst might uh, lose that seat, but that did not turn out to be. I'm kind of curious. How do you describe the politics of Iowa? Iowa. Is it you know? Do you do you use a color or a, or, or how do you think about what it takes to win to sure. win Iowa?
2: Well, the history in Iowa, of course, is really incredible. Uh, senator Tom Harkin, who's a, a close friend and, and mentor of mine, was our U.S. senator for our junior senator to Senator Chuck Grassley, of course, but but senator for a very long time. Senator Harkin would regularly win dozens and dozens of counties, if not a, an outright majority of the counties here in Iowa. So Iowa has ninety-nine counties, which is a lot of counties uh, relative, I think, to most states.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um,
2: and and that's really rooted in a deep nineteenth-century belief in the importance of local government. And and I actually, I guess, I don't know if this is true, but uh, we've been told that the reason the counties are all so small is the idea that you'd be able to get to the county seat and back to your farm by horse within a single day to take care of business. And so that's why the the, the counties are so small. Obviously, uh, slightly different methods of transportation today. But um, you know, So in Iowa, when I think about our state, uh, certainly I'm sure a lot of folks think of us as a farming state, which is certainly true. Uh, but today only 10% of Iowa's farm. A lot of folks are like me, where they are the first generation removed from the farm. My mom, Terry, was a fifth generation Iowa farm girl up in Northeast Iowa. And when um, she went off to medical school, she became the first, uh, going back to when my family immigrated to Iowa in the 1800s from Germany, not to, to be on the farm. And so that's uh, a very common story throughout our, our state. And as folks have moved away from the farm, there's been a lot of concentration in the agricultural sector, which is a probably a whole separate conversation we could talk about. Uh, there's also a lot of manufacturing in Iowa, a lot of light manufacturing. Uh, so Iowa is a state, especially in the eastern part of the state, because of access to the Mississippi River. But then over on the other coast, the the west coast of Iowa, we've also had a lot of light manufacturing uh, throughout the state. And then we also have interstate I, I-80, which is actually just almost, it's like right over the the hill over there from my my, my home. And um, so we do have a lot of commerce that comes through our state. And in terms of, you know, uh, kind of the the governmental or political ethos, it is a state that really in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, implemented a series of, of good government reforms that really, I think, were model laws for the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a model, a model redistricting process. Um, until very recently, we had a model judicial nominating process. Republicans in the in recent years have, have modified that to make it, I think, less the model, but still on that, compared to how a lot of states elect judges. I mean, we still have an, an excellent system in that regard. And that was what led to things like in 2009, Iowa becoming the third state in the United States to recognize marriage equality, which people are always surprised to learn. Uh, And in fact, Iowa had the first unanimous state Supreme Court decision in the United States, which I want to play a very important role in my life, which we can maybe talk about a little bit later. Yeah,
1: definitely. Iowa is a
2: state that really does and has historically prized good government and has been willing to take, uh, you know, give political outsiders opportunities, um, which helps explain. The kind of, I think, surprising uh, success that Bill Bradley here in the Democratic caucuses and back in 2000, uh, when Vice President Gore was seeking the presidential nomination, helps explain Barack Obama in 2008. And of course, Donald Trump in 2016. The, I, will, I will tell you that uh, Mr. Trump's message of draining the swamp, of an American first trade policy, of kind of getting rid of the career politicians, that resonated with a lot of people in this state He was able to win, yes, some Obama Trump voters, but also frankly, just engage new people who had not really been engaged in the political process. And he brought out a lot of new voters. And so when we talk about the pivot counties, and I actually, so my district, my Senate district spans three counties, Johnson where I live, which is uh, affectionately known as the People's Republic of Johnson County, but then also Cedar County to the East, Muscatine County to the Southeast. And both of those counties are Obama, Obama, Trump, Trump counties. And so I spent a lot of time out uh, in that part of my district talking with folks listening and, and hearing what they're, what they're dealing with. And what I would, I would simply hope your listeners would understand is that there's a lot of pain in a lot of these communities. And I, I'm not trying to minimize or justify or, or uh, you kind of soft pedal the bigotry or, or destruction of this president. But I will say that among a lot of his voters, there is a sense of, of loss of pain a belief that he would be able to somehow restore them or help make them whole that hasn't happened needless to say but he has done an incredibly effective job in messaging to these folks and and really painting with a very broad brush when it comes to the democratic party in a very destructive but frankly very effective way uh, that is going to take a very long time for us to rebuild from
1: Yeah. And just a quick follow-up question on that, just because I I do think people think farm and you, you explain kind of the evolution of Iowa. So maybe that my question you've already answered my question, but you know, clearly uh, Trump didn't deliver, right. He didn't deliver for farmers. He didn't deliver for uh, on manufacturing or, or that's from an outsider. That's what it feels like. Uh, Yet Iowa obviously voted for Trump a second time. So, you know, what's your take on that? Do people kind of think he did
2: deliver? Yeah. I mean, I would say yes and no. So, I mean, a couple of things, one, you know, Corn prices are still, you know, it's five bucks a bushel. Uh, soybeans are up pretty substantially the last few months. There has been obviously enormous amounts of subsidies paid to to farmers in Iowa through uh, some of the direct payments that were made as a result of the trade war and the and the economic losses that farmers did experience. On the manufacturing side, you know, the tariffs have really been a double-edged sword uh, in a lot of ways and there's some people who are kind of confused, you know, how can you have a trade policy? You know, I mean, a lot of farmers are obviously very upset. Farmers tend to be very pro free market. We'll uh, see a lot of manufacturing or labor folks be very opposed to just a broad based free market policy. So how do you square that circle? Well, the answer is you just do whatever's best for America. And that's what an America first trade policy is. Now that sounds like so obvious when you say it out loud, but the way that Trump was able to win in Iowa was by bringing together two groups of people and, um, uh, the ag- agricultural area and the manufacturing area that are actually often intention on, on economic issues. And so by bringing them together with obviously white evangelicals, Mr. Trump built a winning coalition in, in this state, and it's an open question as to whether or not in, in Republican attempts in the future, will be able to replicate that success. We'll, we'll see. But, you know, in terms of the, the view about him delivering, I think that Mr. Trump was able to successfully paint Democrats as the reason for whatever struggles he did experience. I will say that I don't think, you know, if if you're a farmer who and by the way, farmers live in a commodity market where prices change in real time. I mean, it's it's a really it's 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 not an easy job and it's not simple and it's you know it takes a heck of a lot of of science and know-how to to be a farmer in the twenty-first century. What I would say is they don't like looking at Twitter any more than we do uh and and waiting on whatever the, the president's tweeting when you're waiting at the elevator is not exactly their idea of a good time uh, but that being said they did feel like he was someone who was going to bat for him and then he was able to blame his failures on democrats on the EPA even though he was running the EPA obviously this fight about uh waivers for ethanol production is kind of a separate issue but he, he was, you know, kind of Teflon Don, and um, needless to say, won a big chunk of the farm vote in, in 2016, and, and that uh, delivered again for him in 2020, despite some of the headwinds he faced.
1: Yeah, well, I guess we will. The jury is out to see what kind of a Republican Party uh, succeeds him and uh, and how that does in Iowa, among other states, right? Yeah,
2: no, no doubt about it. It's a big, it's a big question for sure.
1: It's a big question, but let let's let's turn actually to uh, to your own journey in public service. This is really the the focus of our podcast here. Uh, an honorable profession, as you know. So you burst onto the scene when you were a freshman in college. You addressed the Iowa House of Representatives. You kind of alluded to this a minute ago to speak out against the proposed constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage, which had mm-hmm. been legal in Iowa early on, as you noted. And you talked very personally about your experience being raised by two moms. That video went viral. I think you I actually watched the clip, so I know you. Ended Ended up on the Ellen DeGeneres show before yeah. I talked to you today and spoke at the 2012 convention. So just, you know, it kind of how did that whole thing come about? I know you'd been active a little bit before that speech. So how did you become active? How did you become an activist really on this issue? And, and what is what was that experience like for you?
0: Sure.
2: So I will legalize marriage equality when I was a senior in high school. Uh, my mom's Jackie and Terry, uh, who we affectionately refer to as our tall mom and short mom. Um, your <laughs> listeners can't see this. And I'm uh, even in video, I'm, I'm six foot five. So my, my tall mom is my, my biological mom. And, and she and Jackie have been together since uh, 1996. They had a commitment ceremony with friends and family, walked down the aisle to the theme song of Star Trek Voyager and, and have been uh, halfway together ever since. 2009, uh, we had this Supreme court ruling that obviously was very personal for for our family. I was, of course, over the moon. And then in 2011, I was at the University of Iowa uh, planning to go into civil and environmental engineering. I was studying civil and environmental engineering, planning to go into either uh, work for an engineering company, uh, renewable energy, environmental protection of some sort. And then this proposed constitutional amendment was was brought forth after the Tea Party election in 2010, when uh, Iowa Republicans slipped in con- into control of the governor's mansion, as well as the State House. Democrats, however, held control in the State Senate. And so uh, the word went out about this this, this uh, special hearing that was being called on the, on the proposed amendment. I got the word that it was, it was gonna be happening and decided that I wanted to, to go and say something, worked with friends, family, to try and put something together and then uh, went out and said my piece. And I did not realize at the time, you know, it's funny, I could see there were like TV cameras in the back of the room. I did not see the intern with a flip cam that was sitting at one of the house desks. And that was the, it was the video of that that ultimately wound up going viral and uh, kind of turned my life upside down. And once that happened, I had this decision to make of, do I say, well, look, I've said my piece, I'm just gonna go back to my engineering studies or am I gonna kind of step up and keep fighting? And I obviously chose the latter and, and have gotten, uh, spent a lot of time fighting on the marriage equality issue. And then went on to found Scouts for Equality, an organization that helped lead a national campaign to end uh, LGBT discrimination in the Boy Scouts of America. And along the way, started to really develop an affinity for an interest in um, these kinds of leadership opportunities and advocacy and, and trying to, to make the world a better place and after, as you mentioned, speaking at the 2012 Democratic Convention, it started to become kind of clear to me that I'd have a real opportunity in politics. I went to what is now the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, formerly known as the Woodrow Wilson School uh, at Princeton University, to study public policy, because I wasn't really sure if I wanted a elected official job or if I wanted kind of a, a more research staff job. Was kind of expecting to go work into the, uh, the Hillary Clinton administration. And then obviously that is not how that went. And in 2017, was watching from a distance, but with horror, as Republicans in Iowa who now had a trifecta following the 2016 election, it absolutely uh, gutted a lot of the things in our state that Iowans were very proud of. And it was, it was a, a tough and disturbing thing to watch. And then I, I got word that my state senator in the district that I represented where I had grown up was considering retirement in 2018. And I uh, was encouraged to run for that seat, which uh, I did. And uh, fast forward three years later, I'm now uh, the Senate minority leader in Iowa. And I actually now have the job of the man who was responsible for protecting marriage equality a decade ago when I gave that speech.
1: Oh, that's um, amazing.
2: And, and this, yeah, the symmetry there is, is uh, really poignant and frankly, um kind of hard for me to believe uh, at times that, that this is how it's all shaken out.
1: Yeah. That's a, a such an amazing story and I want to unpack a couple pieces that you mentioned because I just think they're interesting. One one is you you know you mentioned the Boy Scouts of America and that was something that was obviously you were really active in it. you were an Eagle Scout. So that that's so just hanging been, over my
2: right shoulder here. Oh, Isn't
1: I can see it. I love yeah. it. I love yeah. it. But so what an interesting experience to you know to go through that kind of bureaucracy and organization and try to create change so yeah. you know what was that experience like and how you know how what can other people learn from that experience if they're trying sure. to make change
2: well so we were very much working from the outside and rather than the inside out so we were kind of the the loyal opposition applying pressure but who i so as you mentioned i'm an eagle scout i came up in the scouting program uh i can still tell you the scout oath and law off the top of my head and it, we were able to talk about the need for change using the values and the language of the organization, which was something that I learned pretty pretty early on, was that if we wanted to be effective, we would have to figure out how to do so in a way that helped the organization understand that it was in the organization's best interest to actually move forward on on this policy. And I think that we were, we were able to do that. And one of the things that I learned early on was you have to there's a very fine line to walk between pushing for what you know is right and and calling uh, for what you know is right giving space for institutions to do the right thing on a timeline that they can uh, accommodate and also it, it gave me a, an important understanding of the, the different roles that we all play it might sound maybe i had i, I was in high school theater and speech and debate when i was uh, in high school and so maybe I have a little bit of an unusual take on this, but it's just really important to understand that different people have different roles. And it was our role as an outside advocacy organization to have to say and do one set of things. It was the Boy Scout of America's Board of Directors responsibility to do another set of things, or staff's responsibility. you know. It might sound very obvious, but if you don't really understand your role mm-hmm. and how you can operate in that role to, to try and get towards that objective that you have, it's hard to, to make much progress. And then the other thing, the key thing that I learned from that experience was how important it is to understand really who has the power to make the decisions that wind up having the real impact. So we learned uh, very quickly that power rested with what the Boy Scouts called their key three, uh, kind of the subcommittee within the subcommittee of the people who really kind of call all the shots. They need to zoom out a little bit to the executive board then zoom out a little bit more to their partners and, and all of that it was a really fascinating experience to go through an incredible leadership opportunity at a very early age. And one of the lessons that I learned then that I was reflecting on and continue to reflect on is the fact that the hardest decisions are not between right and wrong. They're between right and right and trying to make a decision. I'll give you the example was that um, we had. In April of 2013 to decide, so we expected the scouts were going to put forward a policy that would allow individual scout councils, which are kind of like the regional governing body to, to send a policy on allowing LGBT people, rather than having a single national policy. Instead, what they put forward was a policy that would allow all gay youth in the program, but not allow gay adults. And we had a decision to make about do we try to whip votes basically to support this policy and get it over the finish line or do we decide this isn't good enough and and try to whip votes to defeat it and and force them to bring back a better resolution. And that was without question one of the most difficult days of my life juggling between the impact that this policy decision that we made would have on the future of the policy, the message it would send both for better and for worse. And that was a really, really hard day as a leader, uh, as an organization, as a movement. Um, but ultimately we, we made what I know in my heart was the right decision. But again, it was a decision between right and and right. And, and so as a leader, those are the, the, the decisions that you're tasked with making. And what I would say to your listeners is that this is, this plays out over and over and over and over. Uh, for, for state legislative leaders across the country, is we're trying to make decisions, whether they're policy decisions, political decisions, personnel decisions, whatever the case may be, it is that comparison of this versus this. And it, it can be very easy, especially in politics, to get things into black and white. Very, very few decisions are actually such, uh, uh, have such clarity.
1: Yeah, super interesting. So Zach, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, you mentioned the speech that you did in high school, and that was something I had flagged too, because going back to that speech you gave on the floor of the house when you were a freshman, the economists picked it up, actually, right. and, and they and they said, as I understand it, uh, was a little caption to your video, this is how you win an argument, or something to that yeah, effect. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so I thought I that I found that just amazing and fascinating. And you you mentioned kind of in your in the scouts for equality issue too, kind of communication being key. So, you know, as a now a leader and a public servant, how, how do you think about public uh, communication and crafting mm-hmm. messages as part of something that you think about in terms of creating change?
2: Sure. Well, the, I mean, the first rule of public speaking is always to think about your audience and to think about who you're speaking with. And, and try to make sure that you have a good understanding of what the, the issues are that they're interested in, what the stories are that they're gonna care about, what the history is, if you, can, if you can know that, and making sure that you're thinking about that as, as you're considering how to craft that message, uh, which is something that I did when I put that speech together. I was trying to think in a um, proactive way about how do I talk about my family and this very contentious issue, uh, in a way that might appeal to a, a moderate Republican who feels torn on this issue. And I have wound up hearing now many, many years later that uh, that speech did have the intended effect and I made many moderate Republicans very uncomfortable uh, with the vote that they wound up taking. And and of course, ultimately my my speech did not sway any votes um, on on the floor, uh, every Republican wound up putting against it as did, I believe, maybe two Democrats uh, who were in the house at that time. But ultimately, the bill was stopped in the Senate by a former state senator named Michael Kronstall, whose job I now hold and whose desk I now sit at, which is a, not here in my Coralville office, but at the Capitol. It's a very, frankly, it hasn't really set in yet because I've only been the leader for six or seven weeks now, and, and I've only gotten to go to the Capitol once in that time. Um, I'm sure it'll feel very real uh, here uh, very shortly when we reconvene uh, for the 2021 session, but having that in mind in terms of who you're trying to speak to and and again, what role, right. They have to play in this process of whatever you're trying to accomplish. I would would put very near the top. I am somebody who I speak much better from notes than I do improvisationally. I I need some kind of an outline or or something to work off of to really uh, be able to stay on track or else I start kind of rambling as I did just a moment ago when (laughs) I was giving an improvised answer. But then I would also say that on the communication piece, I, I think that good speaking tends to follow good writing and clarity, organization, saying what you mean. I'm actually reading a book right now uh, by Doris Kearns Goodwin called Leadership in Turbulent Times, which is about President Lincoln, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and LBJ. And a lot of the things that she talks about in that book really resonated with me in terms of, of trying to use anecdotes, sharing stories with people. Uh, that's what really connects with an audience. And that's just, I think, timeless advice that has been true for for a very long time.
1: Absolutely. Just as a side note, I've been trying to get her to speak to the New Deal leaders forever. So if she happens to hear hear you say that and listen to this <laughs> podcast, I'm putting in a plug to have her come well, talk to I, us. And <laughs> I,
2: that, that would be awesome. I mean, i really enjoyed the book. It's been fascinating reading uh, about all four of, of these leaders and, and what they what they dealt with and.
1: Particularly and in these times we're going through, it's so timely, right? The, these are
2: turbulent times.
1: These are there's no doubt about that. I do want to talk a little bit now about kind of how you uh, ended up where you are in the Senate uh, minority mm. seat. So mm. you met, you mentioned, uh, you know, that you were studying engineering, ended up in public policy school. That you decided that that elected office was probably for you. And you talked a little bit about the seat being open, but just talk a little bit more about kind of what what drove you to decide public service, elected office in particular, was the path you wanted to go down.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So, for me, a big part of it came back to this fundamental belief. After Iowa did wind up leading the nation on marriage equality, and then protecting marriage equality when when the chips were down, and, and you know we had to make a decision, you know the state of Iowa was there for my family and for me in a time when that was not easy, and that meant a lot. One of my formative experiences is being in the eighth grade, and my very first one of my very first social studies uh, assignments was to watch the 2004 Republican National Convention and to take notes and then talk about it in class the next day. And it was a very scary experience, just listening to politicians talk in one breath about the global war on terror and Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and and Al-Qaeda and 9-11. And then in the very next breath, turn around and talk about the threat opposing America by this radical Supreme Court in Massachusetts, and this, this specter of homosexual marriage.
0: Hmm.
2: And being just a kid listening to rhetoric like that was very scary. And of course, I didn't understand at that point why there was no democratic response, like the whole concept of a Republican convention didn't really make sense. And like, why isn't somebody going up and, and speaking out about it? You know, that didn't really, didn't really connect. But it was, it, was, it was very formative. And uh, so I learned at an early age that politics was very interested in my family and in me. And then as I got a little bit older, became very, uh, in part because of my experience with the Scouts being very into the outdoors and, and spending time outside, very concerned about climate change, which is what drove my interest in working in the renewable energy or environmental protection sector when I was in, in college. But when the speech went viral, and I had this opportunity to continue to advocate. Part of the reason why I took it was one, I was thinking about eighth grade me and how disappointed he would have been and you know, college me if I had passed on that opportunity to be that advocate that I'd really wanted to see. And then second was the opportunity or the understanding that this opportunity was not something that happens very often. And that frankly, it was a gift that I had not really earned. It just, I kind of got lucky frankly, and I felt like I had a responsibility, you know, kind of the old Ben Parker quote from uh, Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. And I, I took that seriously. and felt like I had that kind of responsibility to step up and kind of along that path, started to really develop a deep appreciation of what prior public servants had been willing to do for families like mine when it was not an easy thing to do. And that just deepened a commitment to, to trying to help pay it forward which was why when I got that phone call in 2017 saying, Hey, you know, the Senate seat may be an option. Would you be interested? I did not really hesitate, not because I was like confident that I was totally up for the job or that like, or anything like that, but simply that I felt like if that opportunity was there to, to help pay that forward, you know, there was really no doubt in my mind. Now, obviously, there are a lot of decisions and difficult decisions that go into taking on new responsibility, which obviously running for offices, serving in a leadership role, obviously uh, entails. But that decision, uh, when the opportunity was there, was was pretty straightforward.
1: Yeah, I love it. And yeah, as leader now, you know, so you, you've only been in, you had one term, essentially, correct? Um, oh, was I was it?
2: elected seven weeks ago. So um, yeah. No. I mean, oh, I mean, sorry. You're saying I mean, yeah, in you're my served, first term. In
1: that's your first right. term, right? So, um, which is kind of so. I, and that's an interesting. I mean, is that a usual thing that happens, and or no. is that unusual? Yeah. Tell me about kind of how that happened.
2: Yeah. So it's it's certainly unusual. Iowa does not have term limits, and so you'll often, I believe, the leader who who uh, whose shoes I stepped into after she decided not to run for re-election had been in the legislature for uh, well over a decade before she became the leader. In fact, potentially much longer than a decade. I I, I don't know exactly, but, and that's actually, by the way, a great illustration that uh, (laughs) I still have a huge amount of institutional knowledge that I'm uh, developing and will continue to develop. And she had been the leader for three and a half years and just got to a point where she, as as kids who are kind of reaching, I think like late high school years and just decided that that commitment was, was not the right fit for her and her family at this time. And so decided to step aside even though I think she had a a majority support in our caucus, probably without too much question. And, you know, we held even in the state Senate, we lost seats in the house in the 2020 cycle, but we, we held even in the Senate, we lost one seat and flipped another. So from an electoral standpoint, she was batting, you know, certainly above average in that respect. And so then again, it was actually kind kind of, it was kind of an eerie similarity to that first phone call. Although this happened much, much faster than that did, which was kind of a protracted waiting period while, other people made up um, made their decisions because there's Mm -hmm. always a domino effect in politics right Um, and i was waiting on other dominoes in that one and this one was like just all right zach you got to make a decision and so i had already been thinking about trying to join the leadership team as an assistant leader just to start taking a little bit more responsibility and learning more about the process so i'd actually been in touch with virtually the entire caucus already about the assistant leader uh, position and then so you kind of the way this goes, just so folks have kind of some insight, you know. So, this all happened in the course of about six days. So, on a Sunday after the election, I go up to Wisconsin to go fishing for a week just to kind of decompress and completely turn off social media and just, you know, um, kind of clear my head a little bit. Monday, do an awesome mountain bike ride, have a lot of fun, talking to a couple of people on the phone, but, you know, not anything serious. Tuesday, I'm like kind of calling through my caucus to make my assistant leadership calls. Wednesday morning, Janet calls me to say, Zach, I'm not running for leader and you should think about running. And I'm like, uh, like, this had literally never even crossed my mind, Debbie. I mean, it was not even in the realm of anything that I had ever considered. Well, let me think about it. So I immediately called a couple of my kind of key allies in the caucus. And, you know, first of all, have you heard that Janet's, you know, not running for reelection? Kind of what do you think? And then I'm like she suggested i think about it. what do you does that just like does that make any sense at all or are we kind of totally off base here or you know and people were very supportive thought it was a good idea I, frankly i was surprised by that it was like i said not something that i had considered so wednesday i start calling around the caucus to say, hey is this is what do you think is a good idea and i obviously i'm cutting my fishing trip short and driving back to iowa wednesday night i sat down with my fiance and some key political advisors and I decided to run. It was a contested leadership election. Uh, I got, uh, was informed that evening that there would be a, a challenge in the caucus, which was not really a surprise, but um, it was obviously, you know, uh, elections are, are not easy, right? Uh, Tom Harkin always says, there are only two ways to run in an election, scared or unopposed. Um, <laughs> I <like> and, so. <laughs> and I am a big fan. So then I spent all day, basically Thursday and Friday, calling through the caucus, making my pitch, answering questions, counting votes. something I got from Master of the Senate and and anything about LBJ. You got to know how to count and counting is really, really important. So started counting votes. By Friday evening, I had finished all of my calls and I felt like I was in a pretty strong position. The hardest part actually was Saturday because the election is on Sunday and the temptation, I'm a bit of a workaholic. And so my temptation was to just keep working on Saturdays, like, no, stop, go read a book. So you I want have and the a,
1: answer you want, right? Stop. Correct.
2: <laughs> well, and actually, I read a book that I would totally recommend to your listeners. I don't have, I don't know where I put it. Uh, it's a wonderful book about leadership called The Captain Class. Hmm. And it's all about um, leaders of sports teams. It's about sports, but it's, I think, super cross-applicable to politics. And people are looking for some good reading here in the new year. Uh, and then Sunday, we had the leadership election and, uh, and I was able to, to win. And, uh, here we are, so I, we don't know for sure that I'm the youngest Senate minority leader in state history. Uh, we, we don't have any immediate examples of somebody who is older, um, but also the evolution of like floor leaders in a structured way is a relatively new development. And we also don't know but can't prove that I am the first, first term senator to hold a leadership position like this, uh, at least in Iowa. It may be true, but we, we haven't been able to, to, to demonstrate that one way or the other.
1: That's amazing. It's fun. either so, way, it's fantastic, and you can you can. I'm not going to uh, challenge you on it. So you can just say it, you know? <laughs> sure, sure <laughs>
2: I'll enough. say,
1: okay, you are. Uh, well, so let's talk about. So this, you know, looking ahead, I know you've talked a little bit uh, about some of your priorities when you got to the Senate. You, were, I know, we're doing some stuff on renewable energy, yep. on uh, wage uh, growth, on yep. housing.
2: Housing was a really big one for me.
1: Housing, yep. yeah. So when you think about your new role as leader, how are you thinking about the priorities for the caucus for the next session?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So obviously, COVID-19 is uh, looming over everything. Uh, We are just last night we received from the majority the kind of protocol memo that they have. And then in about 60 minutes here, I'm going to be hopping on a virtual caucus call with my uh, Senate Democrats to go over the latest that we know what our expectations are going to be for for our caucus and, and all that stuff. Uh, it's going to be a really difficult and challenging session. Um, we resumed for about 10 days. So we suspended our session in uh, mid-March last year as COVID swept the nation. And then in June, reconvened for 10 days for a very abbreviated session to finish, finish up our state business. And this year, we'll be reconvening on Monday. There's no mask mandate uh, for legislators or for the public. Identifying as being COVID positive is voluntary. Mm-hmm. So there are some really serious concerns that we have around those. There are some accommodations being made that we we are feeling confident about, but but that's obviously there's a lot left to be desired there. Um I was a part-time legislature. We are not a full-time legislature like uh, many states. So we are only in session for the first hundred and ten days of the calendar year in an odd year like we are now and then hundred days in the even years. So this is definitely going to be a, a challenging session. For all of us, it will be an especially challenging session for me trying to learn the leadership role and tasks and responsibilities while also navigating all of the, uh, the challenges around COVID. In terms of the priorities that I have as a leader, um, I'm a big believer in the Stephen Covey approach to big rocks where the metaphor is that you got a jar and you got to put the big rocks in first because if you put in the little rocks first, you don't have room for the big rocks. And so part of what I've been trying to do is put in place a little bit more structure uh, within the senior staff and the leadership team trying to create some some focus on what those big rocks are of uh, which obviously policy is is a big rock but it is only one of many rocks uh including things like our our message how we handle constituent service how we rebuild the state party in iowa all of the political considerations uh, that that entails and then and then obviously on the policy side you know, I basically, my approach to this is I talk to my members, I talk to my staff, I talk to department heads, talk to folks out in the lobby, talk to uh, our key partners, try to, okay, what are your big rock policy items that you're really focused on? I, a key thing with focus is saying no to stuff, which is hard, uh, very hard to tell friends that, you know, no, we're not going to focus on that. But that's because we're so focused on these big priorities that we have. And so trying to stay focused on the big stuff while also understanding, of course, that the little things really do matter. Finding the right balance between those is, is really important. And I'll just take the moment here to say that I have a wonderful staff and they work very hard to make me look good, which I appreciate. And to keep our, our team moving in the same direction, which is not always easy when you have 18 duly elected senators from across the state who all have their own sets of ideas on how things should be done and what we should be working on.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And and you actually are, you mentioned you had a Okay, you know, did well electorally, but you're still in the minority significantly Correct. in okay. the Senate. So tell me a little bit yeah. about how, By you yeah. can tell a- me what 18, it is exactly. 18 to
2: 32. Yeah, for, so so significant.
1: And uh, so to what does that look like in terms of getting things accomplished? And how does, uh, you know, how do you approach that?
2: Well, like any legislative body, you know, probably 80, 85% of what we do is completely non-controversial. We're making small code changes that are are never going to have a headline or or get that much attention in the press. And, you know, I will say that despite a lot of the partisan rancor that we see in Washington, and even, frankly, in the state houses, too, we are able to work together, I think, in a pretty good way uh, on, on a lot of those things that are less controversial. And then even on, on some of the larger legislation, there are opportunities for collaboration. There are some bills that are bipartisan. I'd say the vast majority of bills don't move unless they have. Uh, 26 votes out of the Republican caucus in the Senate, and the same in the House for um, their for their group. But you know, when there are opportunities to work together, we certainly are always uh, interested in taking those. That was my approach uh, as as a legislator, as an individual, and it so will certainly be my approach as as a leader. One of the things that I learned very early on is that the ability to work together in a bipartisan way really only occurs on issues that are not controversial uh, or that are not Uh, partisan anyway. So you can have an issue that's controversial and not partisan. And I'll give you an example. In uh, March and April of 2019, several out-of-state investment firms started snapping up manufactured uh, home communities or trailer parts in Iowa across our state, including in my district. And this happened to happen at the same time that uh, John Oliver from HBO had like a lengthy monologue on this topic that got the attention of a lot of folks. And there was this kind of national interest there's the local connection and it was happening in my backyard and so i got very active on this issue talked with a bunch of republicans democrats about this topic and was able to start the process and it is a process of building a coalition of legislators of folks out in the lobby who were supportive or at least who were not in opposition and then trying to take on this interest and accomplish, frankly, the biggest rewrite to Chapter 562B, which is what the chapter code chapter that governs manufactured housing that had ever happened since the code chapter was written in the first place. And we didn't quite get over the finish line and, and 19 Bounced some bills back and forth. We got closer, a lot closer last year, didn't quite get over the finish line, but we are very optimistic that this year we're going to be able to get this done. And get some some bipartisan support for a, a big piece of legislation that is going to make a huge amount of difference in the lives of people. But my my key takeaway there was that we were, by by being able to get to work on this issue before it became a partisan Democrat Republican thing, we were able to to bring Republicans in, have conversations within our caucus about what our priorities were, uh, and then work together to try and accomplish things and. In, uh, in a good way, ultimately the majority is gonna make the final decisions on any of this stuff. But by showing up and demonstrating that we were willing to do the work, to bring ideas, to do so in a way that was not po- about pointing the finger and, and pounding the table, or at least not at the Republicans. So there was plenty of, of table pounding. Uh, it, it was a very powerful education for me. And I, I do think that it was part of seeing me at work as a legislator on this bill that gave a lot of my caucus trust that I'd be able to do this job as leader.
1: Mm, fantastic. Yeah. Let me end on this question. You We've met, referenced your age a couple of times. So uh, yeah, whether or not it's true that you are the youngest in history, you are a young uh, for yeah. a state leader. So what would you tell uh, other young people who are thinking about getting into public service and elected uh, office specifically?
2: Sure. So I'd say a couple of things. One, if you're like ready to run, you're ready to run, go do it. I'm a planner. Uh, it's just kind of how I live my life. And there's a joke in our household that policy is my love language, which is totally true. I will say that if if you're a planner and you like to work and you want to succeed, you know, get in. There's a wonderful book that I'd recommend for running for state and local office. Uh, that's really like a 21st century approach. It's by my friend Amanda Littman called Run for Something. Run for Something is also a separate organization that helps recruit, train, and, and prepare young people to run for office at the state and local level. There are plenty of other resources out there. Just, just go look for some stuff and, and and you'll, you'll find lots of interesting things uh, that are available. Uh, if you are like in high school or college and you're thinking about this is a something that you want to do in the future, the, the thing that I would simply say is that be deliberate in your choices that you make about accumulating uh, student debt because they can become a real inhibitor because of the way that we currently compensate elected officials in this country. It, it, it can be a hindrance, and I'm not saying don't go to the school you want to go to. I'm just saying be conscientious that as you open some doors, you may be Delaying your ability to walk through other doors, at least in your 20s and, and potentially into your 30s. And then the, the final piece of advice that I think I would say is that if you want to succeed in local politics, it's not just about who you know, it's about who knows you. And the way that people get to know you is by being involved in your community. Now, I had a little bit of a shortcut here because I had spiral video, so a lot of people knew who I was. But even before that happened, and part of the reason why I was invited to give the speech in the first place was because I was very involved in, in my community. And part of that started with the scouts. And part of it is just kind of my personality. I like to be a, a part of things and help move the ball forward on, on projects that I care about. And, and essentially, you know, campaign is just a job interview. That's all it is. And if you are willing to work hard and show people that you are approaching this work with humility, with drive and with focus, uh, people were, will, will be willing to look past your age. When we got in the race, uh, we knew that there would be a contested primary. It actually wound up being a four-way primary. Uh, so it was not, uh, I was not anointed or, or anything like that. I had to work very hard and I did work very hard. And I was actually finishing my last semester in graduate school at the time. Uh, so the joke that I told a million times on the stump was, you know, uh, funnily enough, graduation day and election day are are actually the same day for me. And so I won't be able to walk, but I am able to run. And uh, and and run we did. It was a, 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 a a tough campaign, uh, working very hard, but our mantra was plan the work and work the plan. And that was what we did. And, uh, three years later, you know, here we are,
1: here we are. Well, thanks so much, Zach. I can't tell you how much we love talking to you and, um, and just a a plug again for all for you and all of your fellow elected officials in these really troubling times, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you're doing to make this country better. And I have a, a lot of hope uh, that we're going to get there.
2: I appreciate that, Debbie. I appreciate you inviting me on and, and um, being in the New Deal network. Uh, and I hope that the folks who listen to this are, are willing to be a part of this work that's had for, for all of us, because you know, first, maybe most important role in politics is you can't do anything alone. And so we're going to need each other as we move forward.
1: Agreed. Thanks so much, Zach. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Debbie.
0: Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.